oven if you find you want more missing witches and this strange magic in your life um come grab a t-shirt at tea public or one of the sweet black hoodies that i wear all the time or get our book we poured our heart and brains and minds and all the magic we could find into it we'd love to know what you think we'd love to read your reviews on amazon or goodreads and of course the old rate review and subscribe means a lot and support our sponsor at Foxglove Farm using offer code MissingWitches. Thanks. Love you. Bye. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Calvin, welcome back to the Witches Found branch of the Missing Witches podcast experience. We're so happy you're here and I'm so excited to talk to Dr. Julia Skinner today. We love calling Dr. Witches Dr. Dr. Witch. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Skinner and I met um, over the internet over a mutual excitement about women and beer and the history of witchcraft. So maybe with that in your minds as a starting point, allow me to welcome into our circle, Julia. And I wonder if you would sort of give us a bit of an intro to your work with root kitchens and as a food historian, and maybe we can go from there. Yeah, that sounds great. And thank you so much uh, for having me on. I am the founder of Root Kitchens, which is a fermentation and food history uh, organization here in Atlanta. And so it has um, it has a few different things um, that I do there. One of them is education, so online classes as well as um, in-person classes in the non-COVID times. <laughs> and then I do a lot yeah. of consulting for creative um, creative folks. So like I've helped um, filmmakers and authors and stuff, like if they're trying to tell a story, you know, of course, in their work and, you know, helping people think, uh, think through how they can use food to strengthen those, uh, those narratives. And then I also do like a, like a membership uh, like newsletter and program. And that's, you know, that's a lot of fun. I write articles for it and like, you know, develop recipes for it. And so it seems a lot of playing in the kitchen. Oh, playing in the kitchen is one of our favorite family activities. (laughs) Um, Can you talk about where you sit at the intersection of science and witchcraft? Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, in, in in my work, I you know I, I deal a lot with things that can feel very heady and scientific, and often you know sometimes feel over my head. You know, microbiology is not what my PhD is in, um, but you know I, I think something my mom told me when I was younger um, really comes to mind every time I think about how how those two things um, intersect for me. So. My, um, my mom used to tell me, like, she was um, very Christian, but also, you know, unlike many of her peers, would, like, take me to natural history museums and all, you know, all of these things. And I remember asking her about the tension between her faith and her love of science, and she was like, well, I don't see a tension between them. You know, my, like, science gives, like reconfirms my faith like science tells me you know we've learned all these things and isn't it amazing that like this has you know been built and that this is you know that we have this wonderful world to be in and so that's really informed how I think about 
witchcraft and science in my own practice is that, you know, science adds to that sense of wonder. It doesn't detract from it. And so the more I learn about all of the amazing things that, you know, fermentation microbes do um, and all of that, the more I'm just like in awe of them. Like there's such a big part of my own personal craft that's just being in awe of all of these things around us. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, experiencing life from a perspective of awe in the natural world, I think is really my anchor for what I think of as, as a witch philosophy or, or a craft for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to come back to that because I have a question for you about fermentation and leavening, but because I've sort of teased this idea about beer and I guess fermentation is connected. <laughs> and right now I'm sitting in, in a room with two big containers of beer fermenting. So my office just reeks delightfully. Um, <laughs> Can you can you tell us a bit about beer history and and women's history and witch history? Give us a little bit of that story. Yeah, so it's 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 something like I started looking at a couple um, a couple years ago, and then also explore in um, in my next book too. It, it's interesting because it's one of those many cases of women both being vilified for witchcraft and being erased from what were once women dominated spaces. And so brewing for thousands of years has been quote unquote women's work. It was something that was done, you know, in the household, kind of a, like a daily driver sort of kitchen chore. You know, you could also buy beer, of course, from neighbors, uh, vendors, whatever, but like this was primarily women. Uh, one source I looked at said that it was the most, uh, dominant profession of women in uh, medieval court records, which is, you know, is one of the few ways that we have documentation of women from that time, because of course, like we weren't important enough to write about otherwise. (laughs) So, um, it's kind of an interesting, like it was so prevalent and it was so, so much, connected with the identity of, you know, being a woman, being a housewife in, um, you know, particularly in Northern Europe, um, in England, um, stuff like that. Not so much in, um, Southern Europe, as far as I can tell, cause that was more of a wine drinking, um, area, but even back in ancient Egypt, women, you know, wine was considered this thing that the men made and was very expertise driven. And then, you know, they're like, oh yeah, and beer, just like, I don't know, women make that, whatever. (laughs) And then, you know, kind of had eventually kind of had this shift towards it being more professionalized is the kind of weird term that we often use. But, and we see that again in England. And so in England, you know, like I said, these court records showed us that women were really, really the ones brewing. This was very much women, you know, quote unquote, women's work. And then, at some point men decided that they wanted to do brewing and they wanted to like make it something that they could control. And so, you know, as, as often happens, um, women were then, uh, rather than being able to continue to exist in their spaces of expertise were pushed out and their histories largely erased and their, you know, their professional work actually vilified. And so witchcraft, perceptions of witchcraft at least became a very central part of um, the narratives around getting women 
out of those spaces. And so, you know, how our modern, um, our modern kind of image of a witch, like here in the U.S., is pointy hat, you know, bubbling cauldron, cats, like, you know, broom, all of this stuff. All of that originates from, you know, the the ale wives, women who sold ale on street corners in England. And so these women were, you know, they, they were just making it and selling it. And, you know, the men were like, no, we want this to be, you know, big business. We want to professionalize, quote unquote, professionalize this by putting guilds around it and all of these other structures that inherently exclude women. And so they did. And they, as they did that, they used all of this imagery from the alewives professional work to vilify them so the pointy hats um that we associate with witches now those were like i don't know kind of like they're like costume thing like they're on the street and it's like they're like notice me i'm over here i'm the beer person here's my hat and, like, and the you know the cats they would keep cats because they had stores of grain that mice would get in so you know, having um, having cats to catch the mice was helpful. They had a broom to sweep up fallen grain off of the floor. And, of course, the bubbling cauldron itself is a cauldron full of beer. Um, and, so, and so we have this, you know, these women who had been doing this forever, who then when the men wanted them out, you know, just kind of did this thing we see over and over and over again, uh, you know, of women being framed as witches in order to um, scare them out of a space or to scare people away from them for various, you know, reasons. And it, you know, it, if I can go off on a little bit of a tangent, it, it I've been thinking a lot about oh, it. Please. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so I've, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about that history and about the the Celtic uh, goddess Caridwen also because um, I feel like we see a similar erasure within her story. You know, um, Clarissa Pinkola Estes talks a lot about how the stories that we have now are often the bones of what were older, more women-centered stories. And these were often subverted and made into more patriarchal stories. And so we have people like Caridwen, gods like Caridwen, who are vilified as being these, you know, really spiteful goddesses and whatever, but they very much may not have been in the original story. So Caridwen um, in Celtic mythology was the goddess who cared for the cauldron of like knowledge and inspiration. So, you know, kind of, if you're familiar with like the Viking mead of inspiration, she kind of had a similar thing. Um, but they think that it was, it was barley beer instead. And so she has this cauldron with this like special brew in it. Um, and just like with the women who were vilified by the male brewing guilds, her story has, has taken on this light of, you know, this, this kid that she like entrusted to stir this cauldron for her, you know, steals some, some of the brew of knowledge and inspiration out of this cauldron 
And then she goes after him because she's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> and so, you know, but we've now, like now in this story, you know, they've had like, they, there's all this stuff about like, she gave birth to this baby and it was hideous. And then like this, you know, triumphant kid that ended up like actually stealing stuff from her is the good character in this story now. It's like she, you know, she was guarding this very special gift to share and then a male character takes away her agency to share that gift in the way she wants and then she's vilified for it. And I think that's because of that particular framing, it leads me to believe that, you know, her and her beer are framed, you know, through a patriarchal lens in a way that the original myth was not, um, not meant to be. Hmm. Yeah, we do see that so often. And you have those, I have those moments anyway, where I'm reading um, history or mythology. And I'm like, this just feels flipped. The woman became this violent, raging beast. And it sure seems like the reason for that has gone missing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually writing about the Haitian revolution now, about the women and priestesses of the Haitian revolution. And I hit on this quote, it's in Jane Boisvert's um, essay, Colonial Hell and Female Slave Resistance in Saint-Domingue. And it just has been echoing ever since, and I've been thinking about you. So the quote is something like that Vodou was the leavening agent for the people's mm. liberation from chains. So yeah, obviously yeah. I think about leavening and, and fermenting and like how we had these relationships to change um, that maybe we understood differently when we had a closer relationship to food. I wondered if you would just like think out loud for us about yeah. leavening and fermenting and how those processes work, maybe in food and maybe in us as well. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's interesting because we do see a lot of, you know, like you said, these mentions of fermentation kind of as an explicitly magical, you know, like represented as a magical thing, you know, or as transformation. Um, and so indeed, like Sandra Katz talks about fermentation as the transformative action of microbes. And so there's inherent transformation, change, a lack of, you know, a lack of stillness within these sorts of spaces. And I think that you know, that, that's so important to our understanding of these, um, as, as magical things, as, you know, as leavening, I mean, literally to rise, you know, but with that, it's like to rise, but there's an understanding that like, there's kind of a structure within that. Like if you look at leavening dough, it's not, you know, it, there's actually kind of a, a structure of bubbles, of course, holding that up. It's got kind of this interconnected structure along with, the bubbles of carbon dioxide. And so it's, um, I've, I've been thinking a lot about magic and fermentation and change and all of these, you know, transformation and all of this. Um, in part, I'm for fun, I'm making a Oracle deck right now um, that is fermentation based. And <laughs> so it's Oracle cards that deal with different ferments. And then it talks about how we can we can use these as interpretive lenses for thinking about um, ourselves and our magical lives. And so, for example, um, Shio Koji, which is like this salt Koji water blend, it's, you know, it, it has a very simple flavor, but it makes, you know, it makes the flavors of everything else shine. You can use it, you know, as a marinade, you can use it in soups, you can use it all over the place. And so, you know, but thinking about it through that personal interpretive lens, you know, it's like, what can I do to kind of 
perform that, you know, in the lives of others? How can I help those around me, you know, shine in that way? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've been, I've been really wanting to write at some point about, you know, more deeply about fermentation mythology and folklore and all, you know, all of this stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm right now doing the Oracle deck and kind of, you know, trying to explore that space of magic and play along with like my work and with my creative uh, self. And so I'm kind of sitting more with that right now, but I do at some point want to do more of kind of a academic ish dive into, into a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, you know, about how, how fermentation is represented <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause there's two sides to that, like, uh, or many infinite sides, but two that jump to mind that like, there's how writers and thinkers have used metaphors of fermentation to describe what they're understanding about how their own spirit changes through mm-hmm. either ritual or magic or through, you know, spiritual death or through those processes, like you, that language of of fermentation um, gets used a lot. And then sort of like how, you know, um, like metaphysical writers or spiritual writers like to use, you know, quantum physics as a metaphor a lot, Mm -hmm. like, and sometimes inappropriately, probably. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're probably doing, probably doing the same thing with fermentation. (laughs) But then on the flip side, there's like, you know, that your understanding and sort of the understanding of microbiologists and, and people like White Feather Hunter we've had on the podcast before who are looking at the actual process that happens mm-hmm. to the yeast, for example, or to the cell. And really, how do we understand the life of that life? And what does mm-hmm. that teach us about life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's like so many directions it can, it can go in because of course, you know, unlike us, bacteria and um, some other microbes are able to, you know, adapt in a, like genetically adapt quickly to new environments. They're, they're informed by the beings around them. Um, I mean, we're all inherently interconnected and we're, you know, we too are informed by these beings. We have multiple pounds of, you know, microbes living within our bodies that, you know, help us with digestion, mood, and like a million other things. Like we have, you know, we have these like friends that are always with us and around us. Like every surface has, you know, lactobacillus, for example, fermentation microbes that are used in making sauerkraut just are kind of all around wild yeasts, all these other things that are assistive to us that we've partnered with for thousands of years. And, you know, like kind of how we talked about um, when we first started talking, that sense of wonder and like the science kind of becoming an informative lens through which you practice, you know, the sense of wonder that's so central to a lot of our magic. You know, as you said, like being in awe of the natural world. Like I get so excited about the microbes. Like I'm, I'm working on a class right now on um, using fermentation for meditation and building, you know, building a fermentation, uh, practice as a meditative practice, because that's, uh, chef Jenny Dorsey, who, um, I really, really love, um, at one point was talking about how meditation for many people through history, you know, think about, for example, women, the women brewing those beers, for example, um, they, are doing, you know, the lion's share of domestic work, childcare, if not all of it, 
you know, when are you going to have time to sit and meditate and like, you know, sit still? Like there's, she mentioned kind of uh, an inherent privilege in the ability to quietly sit and meditate that many people for any number of reasons um, have not had that ability um, or had access to that. And so I was thinking a lot about that and I was thinking about how then I, you know, then I have often trouble sitting and meditating. I don't have time to or whatever. And I was like, I was like, well, in what ways do I build this into my life? Because many people would have, and like in the kitchen is kind of a main way that, you know, people have done that. And I was like, oh yeah, my fermentation, I've got like this big baker's rack that's full of hundreds of fermenting things at any point. And it's, it's kind of getting out of hand, and, <laughs> but I love it. And, and I start my mornings going and saying good morning to all of these, these partner microbes that I'm working with, my, you know, my friends, my helpers, my collaborators. And I go and stir things and check things and smell things and taste things. And kind of like that has become a meditative practice for me. And so, um, I was, I was thinking a lot about that and talking with some friends and they were like, this would like, you should teach a class on this. Like, so like so many people could benefit from that. I was just like, that was also kind of a tangent. I'm kind of going on a lot of tangents today. (laughs) Oh my gosh. My brain is just lit up. I mean, for one, my, my partner and I think a lot about like, cause he's an artisan, he's a leather worker and he he sort of has said before that his like his mind is kind of only in a meditative state when he's working when he's when he's Mm -hmm. when he's working with his hands and he's figuring out how things fold and bend and move in in space and and going from the sewing machine to the hand sewing and um and I, I I'm so intrigued by this idea that for all of us our natural experience or relationship to meditation was or to you know that kind of brain space that where where we can be more connected to the planet and the universe was tied to our labor in our hands was tied to our craft was tied to like mm-hmm. cooking and the and the time we spent and then when you add that level of you know the the fermentation that that the natural world and the sort of invisible livingness of it was all talking back to us while we were working in the kitchen yeah, um, and that we were kind of broken from that by industrialization, and and that sort of this sort of mix of capitalism, patriarchy, racism, what we might call curiarchy, that that broke mm-hmm. all of us. That broke all of us, yeah. not just women. Yeah, my friend um, Narendra Basin, who's um, one of my friends here in Atlanta, I remember her telling me something that's really stuck with me in the last year, which is that like you know, play is sacred, like this playing in the kitchen, you know, as you just talked about this, like working with your hands, I mean, is like, this is a sacred act to create space for play and for like just undirected, whatever, frolicking, creating kind of whatever just gives you that sort of free, um, free space. And so as you were saying that, I was like, that phrase kept rolling around in my mind too. Mm, Yes. 
we talk about play a little bit in our book, which is arriving at people's doors now, Missing Yay. Witches. So that's my little plug. Julia, do you want to tell us a little bit about your existing books and your forthcoming book and how else people can find you and get connected? I think by the time this episode has come out, we will already have launched the giveaway that we're doing for Julia's incredible 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 online class um is it called preserving abundance mm-hmm. yeah no you, you you talk about it I want to talk exactly okay. about it because I know it is <laughs> so you talk about it okay um so that um that class is all about it's it's very fermentation heavy but it's not exclusively exclusively fermentation um it also has home crafts and you know other you know, non-fermented foods you can make. And then of course, a lot of fermented food too. Um, But it's very much focused on reducing food waste. And so using up your food scraps, the different ways you can do that, um, which is a lot of fun. And that class, you know, that class, I really, um, I, I find very rewarding because it's, it's helpful for getting people kind of in this different headspace of thinking about their food, but like all of my classes, it has a historical emphasis as well. So it has, um, I talk a lot about, you know, turning to the ways that people have made, uh, have made their food in the past. I mean, of course, people were not always able to, like, they didn't have the kind of abundance that we have now they couldn't just walk into a grocery store and be like oh look it's you know whatever way out of season for strawberries yet here they are people had to you know had to make do with what they had and they had to save it and you know preserve it and so thinking through things with that lens I think has been really helpful for people it gives them a framework for doing reducing food waste and I kind of I build in that sort of historical framework around all of my classes those are all available at rootkitchens.shop and then from there people can navigate around the whole rest of my website that has all the other you know consulting and the membership and all the other stuff on it I also have recently launched a class uh, with my partner who is a he's a Senegalese um, artist he's been making art for many, uh, many, many years. His name is Abdalafai. We have launched a class teaching of mud cloth dye, which is, which is also fermented. Um, and so that's over at fermentationschool.com. Uh, and there at fermentation school, um, that's kind of a collective of fermentation teachers. And there's a bunch of other cool stuff there. So there's our class. And then we, uh, let's see, what else? My books. So I have a couple a couple other books um, out right now, um, one on afternoon tea, and then one I published years and years ago that was on this one 1615 cookbook. Um, and that one is called Modernizing Markham. The afternoon tea one is called Afternoon Tea, a history, pretty easy to remember. Um, and the next one is coming out in 2022 so it's coming out um through story publishing and it's called culture begins here fermentation and the history of how we eat so if people follow follow me on social media they can you know sign up for newsletters whatever whatever they want they have a lot of ways to get in touch with me so 
at Root Kitchens and at Bookish Julia are the two handles I use on Instagram and Twitter for folks to follow if they want and get updates about, you know, that book, the Oracle deck, all the other, you know, my crazy fermentation experiments, <laughs> my cats. <laughs> <laughs> Just all the important stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder if you would, uh, if you would leave us with maybe a simple ritual you do. Maybe it's fermentation or meditation related, or maybe it's just like a little starting point, or just something that is working for you right now that listeners can carry into their practice and feel sort of a connection to you and and to the coven when they do it does anything like that come to mind that you'd be willing to share yeah I mean I think you know the thing that's so special to me about fermented food is that it's it's both you know ubiquitous it's you know we have so much of it around us but it's also so simple so you know it's I I really like to get people to think about doing wild fermentation, using that to connect to the place around them. And it doesn't have to be complex. You know, it can be like, I grew these carrots in my garden and now I'm going to, you know, put them in brine and ferment them and kind of see, you know, what happens with that, but not just making it being like, great, I've got pickled carrots now, but like really connecting to recognizing that these are of this place. Like even if you buy the carrots the microbes in your home are different than the microbes in my home. So it becomes your very own ritual um, that speaks to place. And then when you share that with other people, you are literally sharing a part of yourself and your home um, with them. So that's kind of the, you know, a good starting point, I think, for people to just start to get this sense of wonder and exploration about a place. Um, you know, I can think of like a thousand others too, but I think that's a, that's a that's a good kind of, you know, just get something and just you know start like make a, a brine. Literally, all you need is you know natural salt, salt that doesn't have additives, taking agents and stuff in it, and water and whatever fruit or vegetable, and you just you know experiment with it. You just do that, you know, that play, that sacred play, but with um, with food, and then you know, then you're starting to collaborate with these, uh, these beings that have been, you know, been there waiting to support you and are, that are supporting you all the time. You must be a witch. Hey friends, if after listening you find you want a little coven loving in your life, check out our sponsor, Foxglove Farm. Use offer code MISSINGWITCHES to get some of that handmade, ethical, awesome, witchy goodness in your life. Um, we always love uh, hearing from you, so send us your reviews on whatever podcast service you use. Um, and if you want to read the book, gosh, we'd love to send it to you. So find it, tell us what you think, um, and share your thoughts on Amazon or Goodreads. And, and yeah, see you out there. We love you. Be safe. Bless if I can be.